How would you define the good life? An early retirement in a beach house on a Caribbean island? A new home on the 18th fairway and unlimited golfing privileges? A country estate and a herd of horses you can ride anytime? Hey, when someone says the good life, what comes to your mind? The expression the good life is actually a philosophical term. It originated with Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. It's the life that you'd live if you were all-powerful and had the ability to arrange any circumstance. And apparently, everybody these days is dreaming about the good life. Hip-hop artist Kane West, he has a song called The Good Life. He sings these lyrics, I go from mine, I got to shine. He talks about his Ferrari and his girls and his booze and his piles of money and his champagne and his trips to Vegas. And then he belts out, welcome to the good life. Hannah Montana, she sells her version of the good life to little girls. This is what she sings. This is the good life. Have everything you want. Gucci bag, Prada shoes, take my credit card, it's all for you. Can't slow, never stop, fill those bags up to the top. Slide the plastic, flash the cash, ring it up, it's such a blast. Obviously, Hannah isn't the person paying the bills when they come due. Even the rock group Weezer sings, I got off track, I want to get back to the good life. Everybody these days wants a piece of the good life. Here's how Peter frames this morning's text. Notice verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days. In short, he's saying, if you want the good life. Peter offers us the good life, but it's a different version. God's idea of the good life isn't about money or amusement. Or happy places with happy people in happy situations. In fact, God's idea of the good life has nothing to do with your circumstances. Recently, ABC's 2020 did a report called The Happiest Place on the Planet. When we think of the ultimate destination, our minds conjure up a tropical paradise with soft sands and gentle breezes like the island of Fiji. Yet Fiji, believe it or not, ranked 50 spots below cold Nordic Iceland on the list of happiest places. You'd think that the happiest place would be the wealthiest and the most powerful. Yet the United States, with all our money and muscle, ranked just 23rd. The happiest place on earth was Denmark, of all places. Apparently, the source and cause of happiness can be deceptive. In fact, you think back a few years ago. You probably had more money. And you might have had more job security. Even some more toys and stuff. But were you any happier than you are now? Hey, rather than rely on the opinions of Kane West and Hannah Montana and Weezer, we need to discover God's definition of the good life. And 1 Peter chapter 3 paints for us a picture of what God says the good life is looks like. In fact, Peter mentioned seven components of the good life. We're going to walk through the passage and we're going to pick them out for you, but let me give them to you first in a list. The good life consists of seven things. Good company, good comebacks, good conversations, 
good courage, a good case, a good conscience, and good conduct. And this may surprise you, but according to Peter, you can live the good life even in tough times. The good life can be had even under rough conditions. Remember, Peter's readers here are targets of persecution. Their faith in Jesus has put a bullseye on their back. They were believers acquainted with hardship and suffering and ill treatment. Hey, these weren't the kind of people you would normally consider to be candidates for the good life. But the ideal life that Peter describes is within everyone's reach. It isn't purchased with riches. It isn't obtained through privilege. It's not necessarily comfortable or successful. The good life is a life lived pleasing to God. Don't forget the theme of 1 Peter. Life is a test. It is only a test. Your days on earth are preparation for eternity. We make our days good days. We make our life a good life if we redeem every minute of every day and make it count for God regardless of the situation. In fact, there are certain lessons that we learn only through hardship. And Peter is writing here to persecuted Christians. He's telling them how to live the good life. Well, he begins in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Now notice immediately, Peter speaks not to you, but to all of you. He's not addressing individuals, he's talking southern here, to all y'all, that's what he's saying. And here's the first clue Here's the first ingredient of the good life. It's good company. You see, God never envisioned any of us to be lone rangers for Jesus. He didn't create us and then save us to live solo. God desires that we live connected lives. In fact, some of life's highest meaning is found in relationships with other people. You see, the good life is all about good company. Being a Christian in this Wi-Fi age, it's sometimes too easy. I mean, why even bother coming to church? To hear a Bible study, you just log on to the website. To worship, you download a few songs from iTunes. To fellowship, you just check out some Facebook friends. Hey, you don't even have to take off your pajamas. Just open up the laptop and you can have church. Or can you? I say no. Cyber church isn't real church. If your spiritual life is traveling down this high-tech, low-touch path, say goodbye to the good life. You're headed for a crash. A spiritual virus is in your future. Reboot while you can. There are no apps that can replace face-to-face, hand-to-hand, shoulder-to-shoulder, Blood to blood, sweat to sweat, tears to tears kind of fellowship. You see, Peter's prescription for a fulfilling life is a physical connection with other believers. It's not just you. He says, it's all of you. You see, when Christians gather together, it's as if we pass germs. Now, I'm not talking about literal germs, although we probably do pass a few literal germs. But spiritually speaking, stuff rubs off. 
You know, if you're around folks that take risks for Jesus and stretch their faith and serve him at every turn, that gets contagious, doesn't it? You feed off their example. But if you stay isolated from the community of faith, you can forget what faith even looks like. We're physical beings. We're alive in a material world. That's why we need help from each other to grasp the spiritual realities that are all around us. You see, Christians are like redwood trees. They grow best in groves. A a redwood's roots, they grow out rather than down. These are enormous trees, but they gain their strength by interlocking their roots with the trees nearby. And this is true of Christians. We grow best in clumps rather than just alone. And yet church life or or living in a clump of Christians can be a challenge, can't it? Good company requires the right attitude toward one another. This is why the good life is about people living with people and treating each other the way Jesus treats us. Notice Peter's instruction. Be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love his brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. And perhaps this first instruction is the hardest. Be of one mind. My, how can that happen? Look at the diversity in this room this morning. You know, if I wanted, I could splinter us in just a few seconds, in a few statements. All I'd have to do is mention football. We'd divide up into bulldogs and yellow jackets. Or politics. There'd be Obamas and Palins. Or grits. Some would want sugar and others would want butter. The real southerners would want butter. We'd be forming cliques, wouldn't we? With all of our differences in upbringing and ethnicity and education and life experiences, how can we possibly come to the meeting of the minds? There's only one way. You see, the more diverse the group, the more determined we have to be to keep our focus on Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. Oh, we'll have our little disagreements. But if we shift our emphasis off Jesus, we'll fracture into a thousand pieces. It's Jesus that keeps us strong and together. Let's be of one mind. And let's also have compassion for one another, he says. See, here's the irony. On the surface, we're very diverse. But underneath, we're all amazingly similar. Oh, we articulate in different accents, but our heart speaks one language. The soul comes in only one shade, I hope you know, the human color. We might come from different neighborhoods and have different backgrounds, but as human beings, we have the same basic instincts, the same basic needs, even as Christians. Though we all have our own different gifts and callings, we fight the same devil, face the same temptations, serve the same Lord, trust in the same Spirit. You see, there's plenty of reasons for each of us to have compassion and to understand each other. I've heard it put, compassion is your concern in my heart. Hey, it's your feet in my shoes. It's your burden on my shoulders. And we need to show some compassion. That's exactly what happened recently at the Madison, Ohio livestock sale. Katie Fisher, age 17, put her lamb up for sale. She was hoping to get a good price, and here's why. Katie was battling cancer. She'd been in and out of the hospital for several rounds of chemo. 
And before the auctioneer started the bidding, he announced Katie's condition to the buyers. He was hoping to bump up the price of lamb chops. Well, it worked. Her lamb sold for an inflated figure of $11.5 per pound. But that's when the buyer decided to give the lamb back to Katie. He suggested the auctioneer sell it again. And this started a chain reaction. In fact, before the day was done, Katie's little lamb had sold 36 times and had raised $16,000 for the family. Her mother said later, the first sale is the only one I remember. After that, I was crying too hard. Hey, the Ohio livestock buyers, they showed the kind of compassion that needs to exist in the body of Christ. Hey, when we show compassion toward one another, we are truly living the good life. Christians talk a lot about compassion, but what's equally important is courtesy. Peter says, love his brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. You know, a little politeness, just a little respect goes a long way. It's been said, apply a drop or two of the oil of courtesy and it'll sure cut down on the friction. In fact, here's some good advice for you. Be courteous to everybody. You never know who might end up on your jury. For some of us, it's wise to think a little ahead. Every person you will ever meet bears the image of God. And for that reason alone deserves your respect. But in addition, every person you'll ever meet was purchased by the blood of God's own son. He must really love them. So what are you doing cutting them off in traffic? Or stiffing them for the tip? Or being rude to them on the phone? Hey, it's time we all showed a little courtesy. Hey, you cultivate good company by showing compassion and courtesy. But the good life also includes some good comebacks. You know, as a Christian, you'll be tested. Let me, let me tell you, your parade will get rained on. Life won't always go according to your plan. And you'll react. In fact, the rest of your life depends more on your reactions than on your actions. It's your comebacks that reveal your true character. In fact, verse 9 tells us how to react. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Blessed people respond to evil with good. Now remember who's writing this letter. The king of inappropriate reactions. Peter. Peter had learned a lot about comebacks over the years. You remember Peter was the disciple who took out his sword and lopped off the man's ear. Malchus was the unfortunate fellow who came to arrest Jesus. And when he pulled out the handcuffs, Peter pulled out his sword. He, he tried to split Malchus's head open like a watermelon. That's when Mac, Malk swerved and Peter's sword clipped off his ear. Jesus had to pick up the ear and reattach it to Malchus's head. The Lord had to clean up the mess that Peter made. And it wasn't the last time, by the way, that Jesus has had to heal a wound inflicted by one of his servants. We can also retaliate wrongly. In fact, our tendency is to fight violence with violence, swap insult for insult. 
You see, by the time Peter wrote this letter, he'd had time to change his tune. I'm sure Jesus' mercy toward Malchus caused Peter to start to rethink. And then at the cross, Peter witnessed the power of love. He saw Jesus return cruelty with compassion. He took all of the hate and all of the venom and all of the barbarism that Rome could muster and Jesus responded with love and forgiveness. Peter had always wanted to follow Jesus. In fact, that's really all that he'd ever wanted to do. But now he's learned that the path Jesus takes goes through the cross. He reacted to evil and insult with blessing. And Jesus expects us to do the same. You know, when someone suggests, or when someone does evil against you, let me encourage you. You need to retaliate. I would never suggest that you just roll over or take it lying down. You need to have a comeback. When your enemy attacks you, don't ignore it. Don't be a coward. Fight back. Just do it with love. Retaliate with righteousness. Fight evil with good. It's true. To injure an enemy puts you below him. Take revenge on an enemy makes you even. But forgive your enemy and you rise above him. During the tumultuous days of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often commented, the only way to destroy an enemy is to make him your friend. Hey, you're living the good life when you turn your enemies into friends. Peter tells us in verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Here's another quality of the good life. Good conversations. Hey, think about this. Nothing makes life more burdensome than a wagging, cutting, biting tongue. If you're always spewing pessimism and criticism and lies and false truths and gossip and even profanities, it will create a drag on your life. Understand your words are like road work. You are paving the path that's in front of you by the words that come out of your mouth. If you speak discouragement, if you speak hardship, if you're always being pessimistic and bitter and biting, what are you doing? You're creating roadblocks for yourself. The the people who you're talking to are going to have a hard time interacting with you. But if you're speaking encouragement and kindness and blessing, then you're smoothing the path for yourself. You're creating a smooth path. You're creating an easy way. People will want to interact with you. You see, you set the stage for the good life by what comes out of your mouth. It might be entertaining to some folks to hear Simon Cowell mock and make fun of those wannabe singers who audition for American Idol. But why is it we like his bluntness and his bite and his ruthless disregard for other people's feelings? You know, I know if Simon Cowell was judging me, I'd appreciate a little kindness. Just loading up and saying whatever you think, that's callous. And that's destructive. You know the old saying, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you? That's not true. Words do harm you. Marriages break apart. Kids get wounded. Churches split. Scars result because of misspoken words. 
Here's the truth. Get control of your tongue and do it fast or you're going to miss out on some of the good life. We need to have conversations that build people up, not tear them down. And then notice verse 11. It says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Hey, here's another quality of the good life. It comes to people who seek peace. And this needs to be the aim of our conversations. I mean, why always be combative and argumentative? For some people, the goal of every conversation is to prove their point. But is your point what really needs to be proved? I mean, conversations can also communicate love and encouragement. Conversations can foster understanding. Conversations can find common ground. Are the words that are flying from your mouth heat-seeking missiles? Or are they peacekeeping missiles? Hey, the person who prides himself in never losing an argument may never lose an argument. But he's going to lose some friends along the way. And he's going to lose some respect. And he's going to lose a lot of influence. The fellow who can't stand to lose usually ends up sad and lonely. If you want to live the good life, you need to learn that not every battle needs to be fought. Not every hill is worth dying on. Hey, here's my all-time favorite quote. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? Hey, the good life involves good conversations with people and with God. Read verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As Christians, we seek peace, but there comes a time when we have to deal with confrontation. And our first line of attack is always prayer. Hey, God is on the side of the righteous. That means that in the game of life, you need to make sure that you're lining up on God's side. (laughs) You don't want to line up against God. Here's a wonderful truth. The Almighty God monitors the cries of the righteous. Isn't that incredible? His eyes and ears are attentive to your prayerful conversations. Several years ago, New Yorker magazine published Bill Gates' personal email address in their magazine. Overnight, the Microsoft chief was swamped with messages. Afterwards, Gates armed his computer with some filtering software that now reads his email in advance. It sends the important stuff through, but then it dumps the junk mail. Apparently, Bill Gates can only handle so many messages at a time, but not so with God. Did you know that God is never swamped with your mail or your calls? He personally answers every request. God corresponds with every piece of Petition, every piece of information that comes his way, everything he receives from believing lips, God answers it. Hey, the good life belongs to folks who keep an ongoing conversation with God. And I love the rhetorical question here that Peter asks in verse 13. He says, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, I'm sure some of Peter's persecuted readers, they probably could have answered him with a list of names. They knew who were harming harming them. But here's Peter's rationale. If God monitors the righteous and he opposes evildoers, who is there really to fear? 
Peter wants his readers to be brave-hearted. He knows that they'll be denied the good life if they lack good courage. Today, high-tech security is big business. People invest thousands of dollars in their personal safety. But here's the only surefire protection. Follow what's good. Peter says, who will harm you if you follow what's good? Some will try. A few might succeed. But God allows nothing to get to me but that it doesn't first pass through Him. And if it arises to me, it comes with His purpose attached. See, here again is the irony. The good life isn't limited to God's protection. It also can include the world's persecution. You see, the good life is, is independent of circumstances, good or bad. Peter adds, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and that apparently is a possibility, still you are blessed. Now, three decades have passed since that spring morning in Galilee when Peter heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But those words were still ringing in Peter's ears. He remembered Jesus saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At first, when he first heard those words, they didn't make much sense to Peter. Back then, he lacked the perspective that he has now. He was on the wrong side of the cross. He'd yet to see Jesus suffer. But in the years since, Peter had learned the hard way that if suffering was part of God's will for his only son, how could Jesus' followers escape a similar plight? You see, everybody who follows Jesus is destined for some kind of persecution. It could be a severe scourging. It could be a subtle snicker. It could be a cross. It could be a cross word. It could be a physical drubbing or a social snubbing. They might sock you or they might mock you. Yet Peter's own experience had taught him, happy is the man who is so closely associated with Jesus that he's allowed to suffer for his Lord's sake. The highest form of fellowship with the Savior is to share in his sufferings. Make no mistake about it. Without good courage, you're not going to live the good life. In fact, Peter adds, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. If your home is with Jesus, if your treasure is laid up in heaven, if your citizenship is in the kingdom of God, if your life is hid with God in Christ, then what can come then what can anyone on earth do to really harm you or hurt you? Once I received a fax from a friend of mine. In big bold letters it read, Your stock in heaven is rising. Invest everything. What a great stock tip. Hey, the good life is a life that's lived with heaven and with eternity in view. And the good life also, it involves being prepared to present a good case. Notice verse 15, Peter tells us, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Part of living the good life is being certain that you know what you believe and why you believe it. If you were stopped today and asked why you're so hopeful about going to heaven, could you give that person a compelling and accurate explanation? How would you articulate the basic tenets of our faith? 
And why is this so crucial to the good life? Well, just wait until you don't have an answer. Until you get asked and you can't answer. Hey, there's not a worse feeling in the world. Years ago, my brother and some friends, they decided to go downtown to the old Omni Arena to do some street witnessing and to share their faith. That night, Ken approached this guy who was wearing a turban and he had this long flowing robe. It was obvious that he was involved in some kind of cult. Ken started to talk to the guy about Jesus. And yet this cultist was prepared. Probably more prepared than my brother. The guy started quoting scripture. Now he was twisting it and he was wrenching it out of context. But he painted Ken into a corner. That's when the man pulled out a pocket New Testament and he waved it in my brother's face. And he asked him, he said, now, how did David kill Goliath? And then he answered his own question. He said, with his own sword. And that's when he said to my brother, and that's exactly how I've just killed you. Oh my. My brother was so shook up. He was so haunted by those words. Shortly thereafter, he left and went to seminary. He said he never wanted to get caught again without an answer for his faith. And let me say to you, I don't want you to get caught without an answer. And this is where some of you need to catch up. This is where some remedial work needs to be done by some of you. Perhaps your parents never took you to church. Maybe you were an adult before you ever opened the Bible. In fact, up until recently, you've been drinking beer and getting high. You ain't been thinking about God anyway. But since coming to Jesus, everything has changed. And yet there's still some gaps in your Bible knowledge Hey, you know Jesus changed your life, but you too would have a hard time answering why or how. Here's the good news. You don't have to go to seminary to get caught up. There are all kinds of resources available. You can go on to sandyadams.org and you can find a whole library of messages available at the click of a mouse. Hey, the Essential Series might be a good place to start. Along with your Bible and the Holy Spirit, there are all kinds of resources these days that can get you started building a good case for your faith. But the good life also includes two more necessities. He mentions them here in verse 16. He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Notice the good life requires a good conscience. And good conduct. A good conscience towards God. And a good reputation in the eyes of the world. You know, even if you live in a beach house. Or in a country manor. You'll never enjoy those lush digs. If you go to sleep every night with a guilty conscience. It's been said a clean conscience makes for the softest pillow. And no amount of money can buy a clean conscience. It's the one item on earth that's not for sale, and yet it's the most valuable commodity on the planet. Who cares what people say about me? If I know my conscience is clean and pure before God, this is why the good life will include a good conscience. And it will also include a long track record of good conduct. The good life includes a good reputation. Peter encourages us to live a life that's unassailable, that can't be accused. A life that when people lie about you, nobody believes them. Well, how do you define the good life? 
Peter says it's a life lived in good company that reacts with good comebacks, that spreads good conversation and shows good courage and makes a good case and keeps a good conscience and strings together a few decades of some good conduct. But notice again, it has nothing to do with good times and good pay and good treats and good places and good games. The good life has nothing to do with good or bad circumstances. Peter says it this way, verse 17. He says, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Even if I'm innocent of wrongdoing, yet I'm called on to take one for God's team, it's still the good life. You see, according to Peter, not all suffering is created equal. You can suffer shamefully or honorably. If I suffer for my own sinfulness, there's no value in that. I mean, getting a speeding ticket isn't getting persecuted for Jesus' sake. Right now, I'm suffering. My thumb is suffering, but it's not for righteousness' sake. It's for my stupidity's sake. I was in a hurry, and I got careless, and I couldn't handle a knife. What pleases God and what witnesses to men is to suffer for doing good, not being stupid. When your godliness causes folks to be jealous and accuse you falsely, when your commitment to Jesus convicts them of their sin and they attack you in return, then you know for sure, man, you're living the good life. Well, here's the point. The really good life, it isn't a day at the beach. It isn't a bed of roses. There are times when the good life will even include some rough stuff. Remember, life is a test. It's only a test. In the end, what constitutes the good life is whatever prepares us for heaven. Even if that includes injustice and unpleasantness. It's whatever it takes. Welcome to the good life.